0: Hey guys, so welcome to the 10th episode and the final episode of the season 4 of the Teen Whisperer Show. And in this season, we are going to discuss discuss journeys of various podcasters all around the world and how they are doing podcasts, their future goals and many more. In today's episode, I'm so happy to have someone who's actually the co-author of the book, The Business of Podcasting. I mean, like, He's actually an award-winning professional podcast producer. I mean, like this guy has written a book of podcasting and I'm really glad that I'm, you know, able to get him on my show and I'm so excited and so should you, ladies and gentlemen. So let's hear the story from the legend himself. Let's welcome Mr. Steve Lubetkin to the show. Um, So Steve, welcome to the show. And I know you do a lot more than what I actually said in the intro. So uh, please tell a little bit about yourself and your podcasting career so far.
1: Thanks very much, Jeffrey. Um, It's great to be here. Um, I have been a professional podcaster for about 15 years now, but I like to say to people, I I think I've really been a podcaster since I was a teenager, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously was a long, long time ago. Um, When I was a teenager, my dad got me an opportunity to sit in a uh, studio where the U.S. Army trained personnel to uh, work in radio stations, and uh, I spent an afternoon learning how to operate the control board and announce songs and play commercials. And I left the studio uh, having bitten, been bitten by the uh, radio bug. I wanted to mm-hmm. become a radio announcer myself. And so as soon as I got to college, I, the first thing I did was stop at the college radio station. And in the United States at the time, in order to work at a, any radio station, you had to pass a licensing exam. Mm-hmm. And they said, you can have a radio show, but you have to learn this stuff and pass this exam, which I did. And uh, they put me on the air and I was in heaven. It was the most fun that I could possibly imagine being on the radio. And a couple of years later, uh, one of my friends talked his way into a, a job with a local commercial radio station. And uh, he found out they needed someone else. And he called me up and said, get down here and interview with them which I did, and they hired me initially as a production engineer. And then Mm -hmm. later on, I got to work in radio news as a news writer and broadcaster. And I was just absolutely hooked. Um, But uh, the economics of broadcasting are such that you you can't... um, You can't really make a a good living at it in the United States. Uh, You have to bounce around the country and work at very small radio stations for many, many years before you get uh, a tap on the shoulder if you're lucky to work in uh, real radio. But uh, but going back to the comment about uh, being a podcaster since I was a teenager, I left that initial uh, radio training studio and went home and made a pretend studio in my parents' basement and started producing recorded radio shows that I could play back and listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we had no way to distribute them at the time. There was no internet. There were no podcasts, uh, as we know them today. Yeah. Uh, so it was just for my own pleasure. And then it was later on, uh, when I was leaving the corporate world after mm-hmm. spending about 30 years in corporate public relations, that, um, the social media, as we now know it, mm-hmm. it was then called new media only 15 years ago. And, uh, my wife heard a radio feature about podcasting this new thing Mm -hmm. and said, with your radio background, you should be really looking at this. Uh, and so I did. And I said, this is, this is a great opportunity to use this channel for companies that want to communicate with their audiences better, Mm -hmm. but it has to sound a lot more professional than what I'm hearing from the early, uh, podcasters who are mostly hobbyists and enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. So, um, I had to retrain myself because I, I, learned radio in an analog world where we mm-hmm. recorded sound on magnetic tape yeah. and editing was done with a razor blade and a grease pencil to mark the tape. Um, we don't do that anymore. Obviously it's all digital mm-hmm. and I had to learn how to use those digital tools. Um, and then, uh, to gather the equipment that I would need to mm-hmm. produce podcasts. And so around 2005, I started producing, uh, the first corporate podcasts mm-hmm. that, um, people were interested in. We did some banks and some insurance companies, and then we branched out and did some trade associations and professional organizations. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very long after that that people started asking for video. And so Mm -hmm. I had to gear up for video and start producing video podcasts as well as audio podcasts. And we've been doing that, as I say, for about 15 years now. So it's been a lot of fun, and uh, we've learned a lot of stuff along the way.
0: Wow, 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 that's totally awesome. You know, two things from what you said is actually kind of really intricate this thought that what made you actually going through this 15 years? I mean, like, didn't you ever get a block? Like, this is enough. Like, I don't know. I I am not actually into this anymore. Did you actually get that block ever?
1: No, not really, because I always loved the uh, the production aspects of radio mm-hmm. and television. And um, the thing for me was to help companies because I had this very long career as a corporate mm-hmm public relations person. Um, I understood how the companies think about communicating with their audiences and I could help them understand this new medium Mm -hmm. in a different way. Uh, so it wasn't really for me just having an audience, having a podcast, Mm -hmm. um, And having a following, like, you know, you're interested in in growing your audience and having people listen to you. I was more interested in helping uh, organizations see the value of podcasting and make it make a living for me at a time Mm -hmm. when I had transitioned from working for large corporations. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, it was uh, less of a labor of love, if you will, even though I love what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. and more of a uh, what is the correct business model to make this something that I can make a living at
0: wow wow, that's great and you know uh from uh, from india you know the podcasting is really kind of rising right now that because there isn't actually much podcast but still people are actually you know putting out every single day content so if i uh, if i'm actually a podcast right now so if i were to see, you know go to a company and say that like a big company mnc company say that you should start your own podcast i mean like i have help with it you know everything and stuff so how can i convince them like this will actually help your brand like to grow so how should i convince them to start a brand like i can also get extra money as well you know like an overtime kind of stuff so how how do i actually do that any suggestions on that So you
1: know, I think the thing for companies is that podcasting can be seen as another channel, Mm -hmm. another way to reach out to people who are interested in the products and services that they offer. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for a company, for example, that's selling to other businesses, Mm -hmm. um, this can be a really effective way of educating people about complex business issues by allowing them to hear the voices or see the faces of people who are experts in that field. Mm -hmm. So one example that uh, we mention in the book is a a company that I was podcasting for for a number of years, one of my first uh, clients in the insurance industry. Uh, They sell complex insurance products. It's not your typical life insurance or health insurance. It was complex business insurance for Mm -hmm. companies with unusual risks. So Mm -hmm. for example, they might sell insurance to cover companies with environmental liabilities Mm -hmm. or companies. um, Oddly enough, one of the the policies they sold was uh, for kidnap and extortion risks where Mm -hmm. uh, employees are traveling in countries where there's a potential for them to be kidnapped for ransom. Um, So those are unusual risks. It's not the kind of insurance that people typically buy, you know, for their own personal use. And one of the ones they were just rolling out at the time was cyber liability insurance. Now, today, everybody is well aware of the risks of cyber Mm -hmm. intrusion, people hacking into your system, people stealing your customer data, people putting uh, viruses or malware Mm -hmm. into your computers and bringing your company to a halt. Back then, this was a very new field. And uh, the idea of buying insurance to cover the various aspects of this risk was new to people. So what the company did was commission a series of podcasts about what cyber liability is, what are the exposures, what are the things you have to think about. So it was more of an educational program rather than a commercial trying to say, we have the best claims, we have friendly agents, uh, we have low policy premiums. It wasn't like that. It was Mm -hmm. uh, educational conversations with the experts on cyber liability. What should I do to protect my business from cyber risk? Uh, How can I train my employees? All those things. And what it allowed them to do was avoid having individual conversations with people interested in that policy. Mm -hmm. Instead of getting on the phone and repeating the same half hour message over and over the, the people selling the cyber liability policy could say, look, here's a link you can go to on our website. You can Mm -hmm. download a paper, a white paper about cyber liability and read that, or you can listen to our experts talk about it. Here's a podcast. And what it allowed them to do was have 13,000 or more downloads of that podcast, um, which is a significant chunk of that executive's Mm -hmm. time. If you think about him having 13,000 individual phone calls of half an hour each saying the same thing over and over again. Um, And what it did for the company was it made it uh, easier for them to talk to those listeners after Mm -hmm. they listened to the podcast, because they were better educated about what they needed to know. And then when they contacted the company again, they said, okay, we understand the risks now, we're ready to get on the phone with you and actually talk about buying the service. So from a a sales and marketing standpoint, and for for all companies, this is really Mm -hmm. true. Podcasting shouldn't be just because it's nice to do, it should have some impact Mm -hmm. on changing the behavior of the target audience. And whether it's Consumers or customers, business customers that you want to think about buying your products or services, or if it's an audience for, say, a a trade organization that wants to promote action on on, uh, public policies or things like that, it -hmm. should have some impact. And that's what we found was particularly effective for the podcast that we've been producing.
0: yeah yeah, exactly and you know it's actually kind of cost effective as well as what you're saying i mean like if you start a youtube channel i mean like the gear that we have to use the quality that we have to produce is kind of enormous but most of the times the podcasters like i think sometimes because when they are going out hearing in a car or anything like that you know the quality that they're expecting is kind of really something that's different from what they're doing so far i mean like i was listening to the show of tim ferris with hugh jackman you know one day i mean like uh people who would listen to Hugh Jackman, I mean, no matter what his audio quality is. But still, I think, you know, the like the contest actually kind of differs when it comes to that. And uh, yeah, I totally agree on your point. And uh, you actually written a book, I guess, you know, the like I said, the business of podcasting. But before going into the book, like, you know, tips and tricks and everything, what is actually your uh, say, you know, when it comes to what it takes to write a book? I mean, like what it takes, like, the strength, the mind, what it takes to write a book. It's not easy because I always wanted to write a romantic novel. I always wanted to do that. I don't know, but I I, I never actually did that. So uh, maybe I couldn't get the ideas right in my mind. So what's your thought? What What does it take to write a book?
1: Well, it was really interesting because um, the book is co-written with uh, Donna Papacosta, Mm -hmm. who is a a very well-known podcast producer and trainer in Toronto, Canada. Mm -hmm. And Donna and I had met first online through social media. Mm -hmm. And then in 2007, we met at a conference. There was a new media expo in Mm -hmm. California uh, that we both attended and spoke at. And uh, shortly after that, Donna contacted me and said, I have this idea for a book, and I really think we should write it together. Hmm. Because both of us had come to the same conclusion uh, after several years in podcasting. And and that conclusion was that many people get into podcasting, as, as I said before, as a passion yeah. Right. You, you just love doing it and talking to an audience and building that connection with people. Uh, but some people, uh, an increasing number of people, let's say, are getting into it with the hopes of making some money from it. Mm-hmm. And there are several different models that people explore in terms of how they're going to make money from podcasting. So the first model that people explore is the sponsorship model. They think if I do a really great radio show, sponsors will want to buy commercial time on my podcast. Mm-hmm. And what you find out fairly quickly is that doesn't work for most podcasts because most podcasts don't have the number of downloads Mm -hmm. that advertisers are really looking for. In the United States, and I think it's true in most of the world, um, advertisers buy commercial time on what's known as the CPM model, which is Mm -hmm. a model based on thousands of uh, views of a video mm-hmm. or thousands of downloads of a podcast. And what they really mean is they want tens of thousands of views or more. And most podcasts don't get to that level. Yeah. So it's very hard for the advertisers and the people who buy the the space, the advertising time to justify those podcasts. They're just, the audiences are just too small. The second model that uh, podcasters look at is the subscription model, which is Mm -hmm. um, if I'm really good and I'm really clever, um, after I give people my podcast for a few months, I can start charging them for a subscription or a pay-per-view download. Mm -hmm. And that works for some people. It works for some kinds of content. But again, the vast majority of podcasters don't really generate the level of engagement that mm-hmm. uh, will make people willing to pay. And, and, frankly, over the past 15 years or so on the Internet, uh, most media companies have sort of trained people to expect content to be free. Mm-hmm. And so people tend to not want to pay. We were doing a, a very, very high-quality uh, recording of a, a business conference that happened mm-hmm. every, uh, every quarter. Uh, one of the local chambers of commerce produced Uh, a panel discussion with leading executives in different industry sectors. There would Mm -hmm. be four or five of them on the panel. And these are people, you know, running multi-billion dollar companies or um, government executives like economists from the Federal Reserve Bank uh, talking about the economy. And it was a really good quality conversation. We recorded them and we got to a level of downloads where I said, you know, maybe we should charge a little something for these Because we're getting thousands of downloads. As soon as we put a paywall in front of that podcast, the downloads went to zero. Uh, People were unwilling to pay for the content, even when it was good quality content. Mm. And so we found in a number of different ways we've tried it, that that model didn't work for what we were doing, and it tends to not work for most podcasters either. Uh, the same thing with the tip jar. You know, mm-hmm. you can put up a tip jar, yeah. whether you use a GoFundMe or a Patreon or any mm-hmm. of those sites. Um, And most people don't get a whole lot of money out of that. Um, The few podcast sponsorship opportunities that are out there uh, tend to require you to do an awful lot of preparation work, whether it's voicing the commercial Mm -hmm. or putting links into your podcast page or using special URLs to host your podcast so they can track how many people download it. And at the end of the quarter, you may get a check for $10 US And, and that tends to not be, worth the amount of time that goes into it. What Donna and I found was that the reliable model for podcast revenue generation was to become podcast experts, podcast producers, Mm -hmm. and sell our services to companies that want to have a podcast, but really don't want to invest in the infrastructure Mm -hmm. for producing podcasts. And, you know, in most companies, what we found happens is, they, will, they say, we want to do a podcast. Who, who, who's willing to do the podcast for us? And uh, someone raises their hand. And oddly enough, it's typically not the people in the communications department. Mm-hmm. It's not the public relations people. It's usually the information technology people. Because they like to work with gadgets. They like to work Mm -hmm. with it. And for some reason, podcasting and videos have become associated with the website. It's an internet activity. It's not a communications activity. So they'll put their hand up and say, I'll do it. They get the budget money. They go out and buy some really nice equipment because companies will spend the money for nice equipment. They go around and record interviews with people. Mm -hmm. And then they go back to the desk and they're ready to start doing the editing on the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's at that point when the IT person who has other responsibilities is told, you have to go to this vice president's office. He needs a new laptop. Mm -hmm. Or this one, his mouse stopped working. Or another person has a blue screen of death. And the podcast goes into a drawer And it's quickly forgotten because it's not their primary duty. Mm. And so what we provide is um, a turnkey opportunity for people to say, here's what we want to do. Here are the people who are going to be on it. Produce a podcast for us. Give us something to listen to. We'll give you edits. You do the edits and turn it around to us again, and we'll have a podcast. And that's really been the most successful way for companies to get into podcasting. But it provides an opportunity for folks like me and Donna and others to be the producer and to uh, make money for uh, selling our services mm-hmm. to the companies. And that's, that was the genesis of the book because B- Donna and I were both finding the same thing. And that was occasionally we would get double booked. We'd have a client who would say, I need you to be over here at 10 o'clock on Thursday. And then I'd get a call from another client says, I need you to be over here at 10 o'clock on Thursday. And I can't be in two places at once. How do I do that? And the way that I did that was, uh, was, I thought, reach out to one of my podcasting friends mm-hmm. and say, can you do this? And what I found was su- a surprising number of podcasters were tied to a desktop computer in their basement without any kind of gear to go portable. Yeah. Uh, and I said, you know, you're leaving money on the table, dude. You, you know, you need to go buy some digital recorders and some wireless microphones mm-hmm. and be able to throw it in the car and go somewhere. And I couldn't find people who could do that. Mm. And that's, you know, when Donna approached me about the book, I said, this is perfect because we can show people there is a business model for podcasting, but you have to change the way you think about what you're doing. It's not a hobby. It's not for fun. It's it's a business services model. Mm -hmm. So that's how we got there. And, you know, we spent about a year and a half writing the book. We took the time and made the investment to have a professional copy editor Mm -hmm. go over what we wrote. Um, You know, we spent time on uh, Skype calls, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back and forth on different sections. The editing, um, we hired a a wonderful, wonderful cartoonist out of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, Rob Cottingham, who uh, we commissioned to produce a number of, um, custom uh, cartoons about podcasting for the book. Mm-hmm. My favorite is one where he has two dogs sitting in front of a computer. It's a uh, play on the famous New Yorker cartoon uh, where the dog says to the other dog on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. <laughs> um, in, in, in Rob's cartoon, in his imagining of it, uh, he has a dog say to, the, he's sitting in front of a podcast microphone and he says, you know how they say on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Not so much with podcasting.
0: It's, whoa, whoa, whoa. it's obvious
1: as soon as you open a microphone, it's a dog, right? <laughs>
0: um,
1: so he did some, some great cartoons mm-hmm. for us. And uh, we have some personal stories about our own journey through podcasting. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's been a lot of fun having the book and being able to share it with people and, mm-hmm. and hopefully get other people interested in the idea of being a podcaster for revenue. But it's different. It's not about being a celebrity necessarily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, interestingly, I actually kind of implemented what you're saying, you know, uh, like, giving podcasting as a service so actually I have a client I do video editing and audio editing you know mostly like uh, you know professional editing and stuff so one of my clients who actually you know produce, uh, produces video for uh, and gives me for editing like on Instagram and Facebook and stuff he actually asked me you know I'm going to start a podcast just tell me what to do and I was really astonished I mean like wow thank goodness I have a podcast so that I can you know suggest them like you know do this and do that and he asked me to do you know just do you you can do everything like audios and promotion videos just you can do everything and uh, yeah I can an extra money after of that. So, I mean, like sponsorship is one thing I can totally understand, but I don't know, because when sometimes the sponsors are expecting the number of, uh, you know, uh, leads or sales from the podcast when they are actually advertising. And if they don't get that, it that might actually, you know, leads to problems itself. Like uh, I have actually had some experience, you know, like heard some experience when people say that. And uh, absolutely. I think that's actually a pretty viable business model. I can, I can totally understand on that. So, uh, How much is actually, uh, do you think is, uh, you know, the importance of webinar these days? I actually saw one of your YouTube videos that, you know, you guys were actually doing something online, talking about things and stuff. So how much do you actually think that actually comes into place, uh, you know, these times, actually?
1: uh, I'm not sure I understand. The webinar, actually.
0: The webinar cases.
1: Webinars. Um, We're actually, you know, particularly now with the uh, pandemic lockdown, Mm -hmm. we're doing a lot more live, live streamed events online. Uh, One of our clients who we've been with for uh, almost uh, 12 years now is a a news website Mm -hmm. uh, that was started by uh, former newspaper reporters in New Jersey to cover public policy issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, they cover them all over the state. The reporters, the journalists are veterans of covering New Jersey state government. And they started the website um, and they report, you know, regular, you know, mm-hmm. print stories about uh, public policy. But they also uh, do a series or they have done a series of live seminars where they invite people to come to a venue and listen to a panel of experts talk about that issue. And we started early on with them recording podcasts and then videos. And then um, they were acquired by the local public uh, broadcasting outlet for New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So uh, we didn't do as much video for a short period of time. We were doing only uh, audio podcasts of the events. And then the pandemic came. Um, and the, with the lockdown, uh, they've, they've taken the live events and made them virtual. Mm-hmm. And so what we we're doing is uh, we're using broadcast production software for live switching mm-hmm. to bring together the guests who are no longer going to a specific place? They're all staying in their coronavirus lockdown location, yeah. uh, which is usually, you know, home, home office, or whatever. Uh, and we're bringing those those video feeds together remotely and live switching them to an audience on Zoom or some other platform, uh, where we can uh, bring to the production, all of the broadcast quality special effects that you would expect to see if you were watching a TV station. We can Mm -hmm. put, you know, the lower thirds on the screen like I have on my screen right now. Uh, We can put trademarks, you know, logo bugs and things like that on the screen. We can also show pre-recorded messages. We've done that a couple of times with guests who couldn't join us uh, on the live program. They pre-recorded their segment. We put it on as part of the content and we've been doing quite a few more of those now because the audience is there. People are home. They're working from home. Um, they're looking for content that they can digest at their convenience. So they can either watch the live program or we can turn around the recorded version of the program very, very quickly because we're recording it as we're doing it. Um, And because we're recording the live switched program, we don't have to do a lot of post production to it. We do a couple of tweaks to chop out the beginning of it where we tell everybody to be quiet. Um, We cut out the ending where people say, you know, they're taking off their microphones, but they don't realize they're still live that sort of stuff. Um, And we make it into a a polished, finished recording. And people can listen to that or watch that at their convenience. So uh, there's a lot of opportunities. People tend to do webinars, I think, badly because Mm -hmm. I think they rely way too much on uh, PowerPoint slides as they do in live seminar settings. Um, the slides should not be the focal point. The focal point should be the subject matter expertise of the speaker mm-hmm. and the speaker's personality. Let the speaker get out in front and and let people see who the person is. I think that drives the comfort level of an audience more than mm-hmm. having the person read the slides to them.
0: Yeah, and actually, I really wish people would agree more onto that because you know, whenever I'm taking seminar, people always consider more on the slide. That's one of the reasons why, I will just put a white slide and, you know, a black text, like just a uh, no, one or two points because I just want people to see me rather than, you know, seeing the slides. I don't know why people are more interested in the, you know, the slides. i mean, like, yeah, it's kind of colorful and everything and stuff. But I think the, you know, the speaker always matters. And yeah, and uh, just want to clarify, you were actually born in 1957, if I'm right.
1: I was, yes.
0: Awesome. Uh, so what's your viewpoint on viewing like podcasting when you are starting out? until now i mean like there should be a, you know a paradigm shift like somewhat around that that should be like a shift in the people's minds of about podcasting and everything because you know if i ask you what's your thought about millennials obviously some people would say there's much of much of change that's what uh, people were in the you know before days and now i mean like what's your thought on podcasting and if you want to say about millennials also you can now say that i'm actually one of them so <laughs> i would be pretty interested to hear about that as well
1: I love, I love millennials. Um, mm-hmm. I have two in my family. Um, I have two daughters who are in their 30s. Oh. And, uh, you know, I, I have always been an early adopter of technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked in radio back in the 1970s, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a boomer, you know, the typical stereotype about the boomers is we don't understand yeah. technology and we yeah. don't get it. Uh, yeah. But I, I disagree with that notion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was working in radio, I was also writing for um, a newspaper, and the newspaper owned the radio station I worked for, uh, and they they uh, hired me to write about rock and roll music, as because I was a you, you know young college student uh, coming up, and <laughs> I knew more about rock and roll than most of their uh, entertainment yeah. reporters did. Uh, so they got me writing about local bands, and as luck would have it, in 1977. Uh, one of the most famous of the uh, Woodstock era large outdoor uh, concerts took place. Um, it was it was a concert at uh, a, a motor speedway mm-hmm. in central New Jersey. Um, and the featured act was the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who are Grateful Dead fans will remember the con- concert. It was at uh, English Town Raceway Park, September 3rd, 1977. And, and it was in the area covered by the newspaper I worked for. Mm-hmm. So they sent me to cover the music. They sent another reporter with me, whose job it was to cover the actual news event nature of the event, because there were over 100,000 people descending on this very small town in central New Jersey for this Grateful Dead concert. And uh, I remember we were flown into the concert by the concert promoter on a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the newspaper had an early deadline. The concert was on a Saturday, and because it was a Saturday, there was an early deadline for the Sunday newspaper, and they wanted our coverage to make the paper. Um, The newspaper we worked for was one of the first in New Jersey to computerize its newsroom in the early, uh, Mm mid-70s, and they had these portable terminals, data terminals, um, and I'm, I'm a exaggerating the size, it's, it's much larger than that. It was, it was about the size of a suitcase. Wow. Um, it weighed wow. about 60 pounds and it came with a whole bunch of cables and wires. Mm-hmm. Um, and it required an acoustic coupler to connect to a telephone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they gave us this and said, write your stories on this and feed them back to us from the site. So we get it in the paper. Uh, and when we landed, we realized, you know, the technology did not have, uh, there was no internet, right? Um, We had to find a place to plug in this portable data terminal because it didn't run on batteries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that that, uh, power source needed to be near a telephone because Mm -hmm. we had to also plug into the telephone to feed the stories back to the newspaper. Uh, But somehow we managed to find a place where we could do that. And as far as I can tell, it was the first rock and roll concert in history that was covered using a portable computer. And Mm -hmm. we were the ones who did it. Um, You flash forward about 11 years. I was working for a technology company. Mm -hmm. This is 1988. Um, And I went to a conference in uh, Santa Cruz, California, where I met someone who wrote for a uh, computer trade publication. He gave me his business card and he had his email address on the business card. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. Yeah. And I came back home from the conference and I uh, ordered new business cards with an email address on them. Mm-hmm. So um, I tell people, you know, I was using a portable computer at a rock concert in 77 and I've had an email address on my business card since 1988. Um, I think I have a little something going on about technology. Um, I'm not afraid of it. I, I want to learn how to use it. I want to learn new stuff. And, uh, you know, this journey into podcasting has been a perfect way to leverage the skills that I learned along the way, but also to transform them and use them in new and different ways. So, um, and I think the millennials do a great job of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone, you know, when I first went out on my own, uh, 15 years ago, I started going to networking events and a lot of the networking events had people my age who had suddenly found themselves without a corporate job and didn't know what to do. Um, and also at these things were some of the millennials, um, who were like, you know, hanging out and building websites and building companies themselves. And I learned fairly quickly that I would learn a lot more at those events if I went over to the side of the room where the people with the piercings and tattoos were uh, (laughs) than if I stayed on the side of the room where the people wearing
0: suits. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's kind of because millennials actually more judged on their, you know, appearance as as I have seen like uh, more on these two days because, Sometimes you can be a jock and also be, you know, a nerd as well. I mean, like this is it's kind of dialogue. Actually I heard in a, in a, in a, in a series, in a web series, you know, English web series. So, wow. I think I can't believe you actually have these kinds of thoughts on millennials. I actually really wondered what it was and it was really, really, really amazing. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, time. I, like, I have
1: a lot of fun with them. I, I enjoy learning from millennials. Hmm. Um, I do not disrespect them. I hope in any way. Um, <laughs> But I also, you know, would like to be respected as well. You know that yeah. uh, I'm I'm willing <laughs> to learn, and uh, you know I'm not I'm not dead yet, as they say.
0: <laughs> oh, that's an awesome one. So, just one question, you know, out of the context is that uh, it's actually morning or evening? There, you know, what's your time?
1: Um, it is a little bit after noon. It's around the lunch hour here. Awesome, welcome.
0: So, who was the last person that you actually made smile today? Say that again. Who was the last, last person? person that you actually made smile?
1: I, I'm not sure I understand.
0: I'm uh, sorry. Made smile. I laugh.
1: Oh, made smile, made uh. smile. Oh, it'd be my wife. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, you know, my wife and I are, uh, my wife is retired. Um, <laughs> and we are, you know, obviously not quarantined, but we are, you know, staying home to protect ourselves. And, um, you know, we just, we, we have a lot of fun. We, um, we have two cats that we enjoy and uh we watched we were watching some funny videos this morning and we just had a a real good time uh laughing at the funny videos so
0: oh great and you know just one curious thought actually came to your mind right after say that you said your wife only said you know that uh, she heard somewhere in social media about like podcasting and she told you and you you should do that so i mean like this covid situation actually has raised like t- no 10 times more the divorce cases as far as I've studied, what is that, you know, because everyone is at home and they are fighting and everything and stuff. So do you have any suggestions for those couples that actually working, you know, work at home and everything as well, you know, just to maintain that relationship, any advice on that?
1: Oh, uh, you know, (laughs) you, you, you have to have a sense of humor and you have to have a sense of, you know, we're we're in this together and we're, we have Mm -hmm. to do the right thing for ourselves. Um, You know, I, I tell people now, as I look back, I've been, Preparing for something like this without even realizing <laughs> it. For Fifteen years when I first started working at home, and I think a lot of people are discovering this mm-hmm. as they work at home for the first time because of the pandemic. Um, there are a lot of things you need to set up to get your house working in, in the proper way. There are a lot of tools that you take for granted in the office that you don't have at home. Uh, starting with a you know a, an ergonomic chair that you yeah. sit in that you're comfortable in for hours at a time. Uh, for me, it was you know equipping a home office with the uh, office equipment I needed uh, mm-hmm. to get things done. And when I first started, it was things as ridiculous as having a fax machine. Um, you know, nobody would have a fax machine today or, <laughs> or think yeah. about that as being important. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was you know things like getting a three-hole punch. I mean, you know, to punch papers and put them in a binder. Um, you you might take that for granted at the office or binding Mm -hmm. equipment, or um, in my case, it was buying the the right kinds of audio and video equipment Mm -hmm. to serve my needs. And I'm, you know, still buying stuff um, because my uh, video production has moved from, you know, three cameras in a large studio to me sitting in front of a webcam. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed to buy a a gooseneck stand to put the webcam on so that I could talk to you today. Um, You know, things like that. Repositioning the, The video lights in my studio Mm -hmm. so that they're pointing into my master control room Mm -hmm. instead of into my interview studio and then making it easier to use them. So um, I bought myself a couple of uh, wireless remotes to turn the lights Mm -hmm. on and off, Uh, you know, things that you wouldn't think about until you actually find the need for them. Uh, So it's that kind of thing. But in terms of the personal relationships, you have to spend some time together. Um, I'm fortunate that uh, the, the flow of my work, I'm usually able to stop working around Mm -hmm. five or 530. And then we have dinner and we take turns cooking because we're not going out, obviously, like we Mm -hmm. used to to get uh, restaurant meals. Although, you know, a couple of times a week, we will go out for takeout food from the restaurants that we like and we care about and we want to keep in business. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we support them by buying, you know, a meal and bringing it home. Uh, But we generally, I go to the grocery store once a week, buy everything we need and uh, we take turns cooking. And so that's been a lot of fun, you know, getting myself back into the kitchen. Um, You know, you just have to be imaginative and creative and just try to, you know, not be totally stressed about everything Mm -hmm. that's going on right now.
0: Wow. wow, Great. You know, you may actually wonder like why I asked the question is this, it's just that, you know, this is actually a business podcast and why you're asking personal relationship question. You may have thought about that, but the thing is that my Actually kind of like how to say um, the ultimatum or what I always thought is that whatever money you earn, whatever do you do in life, if you don't have a family to, you know, to, you can crawl back into, you know, when you are sad or when you're happy, then ultimately you're doomed. <laughs> Sometimes you, you actually feel like that, right? When you don't have someone to express your feelings, then... I don't know, because I'm actually, you know, 22 right now. And uh, I'm actually gone through a lot, like, you know, college romance, everything and stuff. And that actually taught me something. Like if you have someone to crawl back to and, you know, without judgment, obviously it will help you in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why I
1: asked. It's very me. true. And, and family is so important at a time like this. Yeah. Um, you know, no one, no one is ever going to say as their last words, I wish I spent more time at the office. Um, that's (laughs) such a true statement. And if you find something that you can be passionate about and make some money at, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been fortunate to be able to make money doing podcasting and Mm -hmm. I love coming into the office every day, even though the office is right downstairs in my house. Uh, but you know, the more important thing is to be able to disconnect and say, okay, I'm done for the day. Mm -hmm. Um, and then spend some time relaxing and enjoying life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Totally agree on that. Wow. Okay. Uh, so let's actually move on to the rapid fire question. So there are actually six questions. It's kind of relating to podcasting and kind of life and funny stuff. So just to, you know, mix it up a little bit. So you can ask me a line or two. That's totally, you know, uh, formidable for that. So I'll start. So the first is uh, what do you actually like about podcast?
1: Well, I like that it, it allows me to, uh, you know, continue to improve <laughs> my radio and video production skills. Um, I'm always learning new things and new techniques and how to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been lucky to reconnect the fellow who got me into a commercial radio back in the 1970s. Um, about four years ago, five years ago, we reconnected. Um, he is now producing a daily music radio show that is mm-hmm. live stream, not live streamed, but streamed on a tape delay. Um, over um, a streaming radio site here in New Jersey. And it focuses on New Jersey musicians like Mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Mm -hmm. people like that. And he contacted me when he was preparing to do the show and said, I want to do it like an old time radio show. And I would like to have an hourly newscast. And would you be Mm -hmm. my newscaster? Um, And I said, this is great. And so every morning I tape a a three minute newscast that he inserts into that radio show. Um, And so I get the kick of hearing myself on the radio again. Um, which is, you know, it's a lot of fun and I get to uh, interview some cool people. I've interviewed some, uh, you know, former governors of New Jersey and real, you know, existing governors. Um, we, we've gone out when, when it was possible to do so. We've gone mm-hmm. out to news events and recorded audio or video for those news events and put it into the newscast. So, you know, that's a, a you know, it's just a lot of fun to be able to be doing radio and TV oh. without having to deal with all of the, um, stresses that come with the commercial broadcasting world.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, what do you don't like about the podcast?
1: Um, sometimes it's difficult to get clients comfortable with different approaches to things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes. Uh, the client is is not comfortable with using a, a certain tool or technique mm-hmm. that we'd like to use. But, you know, that's, that just goes with the territory. You're going to have yeah. that no matter what kind of business service you provide. It's not, there, there's very little to dislike about it. Um, most of what I dislike is the, um, the perception that everyone in podcasting is looking to become a celebrity mm-hmm. and you know, be world famous. And that's just, that's really unfair to podcasters
0: wow Wow! great uh so what's the major like the biggest problem that you ever faced you know these 15 years of podcasting
1: the biggest problem i ever faced um you know the technology is still not a finished polished mm-hmm. reliable um redundant technology and that goes mm-hmm. for both uh, audio and video mm-hmm. and you know, no matter how powerful your computer is, no matter Mm -hmm. how fast your internet connection is, there are always glitches. So, uh, you know, the thing that has failed me the most um, consistently failed me is the concept of live streaming. Mm -hmm. So we, a couple of years ago, we were trying to do a live stream for a client at a venue when we Mm -hmm. were out doing them as, as remote events. We went to the venue Uh, the week before the event was to take place and we set up all our equipment, we tested the connections and we were using a wired internet connection, not a Wi-Fi connection Mm -hmm. and everything worked fine. So we go home and come back the next week for the event. We set up the equipment and we plug in and the live stream platform, uh, which in this case happened to be Facebook, wouldn't accept our connection. It just wouldn't accept the connection no matter what we did. And it's 10 minutes to airtime what do mm-hmm. you do? And so uh, fortunately, I had I had started using Zoom mm-hmm. for uh, some, some uh, programs. And uh, I was able to quickly switch over to Zoom and feed the live stream content into a Zoom conference and put up a note on the Facebook page saying, hey, we're sorry, uh, the Facebook Live you were expecting is going to be done as a Zoom. Mm-hmm. Here's the link. And we still got a number of people on it. But the idea that Uh, You know, if it goes down and you can't connect to it, you have no one you can call. There's no one you can call at a place like Facebook or Google. Uh, There's no tech support. You're Mm -hmm. on your own. Um, And so that kind of fail, you should be expecting it to happen and have a plan B. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are times when you never know. Um, I'm working on a second book, I, um, wow. which, which goes awesome. back to my radio career. Mm-hmm. I'm calling it Management Lessons from the Radio Control Room. Mm-hmm. And one of those management lessons uh, has to do with the, in, in radio in the United States, uh, they typically put the conversations on a seven second delay. Uh, in other words, there, there are seven seconds between the time the person says it and the time mm-hmm. it actually goes yeah. on the air so that you have time to bleep them if they use a profanity or mm-hmm. say something objectionable. Um, and the way we did it back then was with a loop of magnetic recording tape going around a, a mm-hmm. tape machine. And while I was doing one of these shows, I happened to look at the tape machine and the loop of tape had separated at the splice. Oh my God. And I knew at that moment I knew I could see when my show was going to go silent, and I had to figure out how do I keep this show going <laughs> with the tape loop about to disappear. And you know, we figured out how to do it, and uh, you'll have to read the book to to learn what we did.
0: Wow, wow! You've actually gone through a little really great adventure, I think, so <laughs> 15 years of podcasting. I guess.
1: I've I've enjoyed it, and um, you know it's it's been it's been a good it's been a good ride.
0: Oh, wait. So this question, I think is totally contradictory by what you're saying so far is that if in case if you have never done podcasting, in case you have never done it, never started a radio station or never done it, what else you would have done in those in those times?
1: Well, I, someone who's starting out and wants to do a podcast, you first have to have an idea of what you want. What information are you going to convey? What's the topic um, or the approach going to be? Mm-hmm. And who are the speakers going to be? Um, I think the, the one thing that happens a lot is people think podcasting is just a matter of me talking into a microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and what people find out is if they're going to talk all alone into a microphone, it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard to carry that for a long period of time and make it interesting to <laughs> an audience. That's why there are so few people who become successful as talk show hosts, right? Yeah. Um, and I think um, the more interesting you can make it, uh, the more likely you are to draw an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means, you know, interesting guests or interesting topics and editing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some people have a tendency to believe that you push the record button and then when you're done, you push the stop button. And that that piece of recording that you've just created is what you put out. Um, it, there's a lot more work that goes into it. And yeah. if people actually realize how much work goes into producing mm-hmm. some of the uh, very popular, uh, best listened to podcasts, mm-hmm. the ones produced by major media companies, uh, they would have a keener appreciation for how hard it is to produce really good quality sound or video. There's an enormous amount of editing goes into it. For every hour of uh, field recording mm-hmm. we do, or video, if we're doing a video news story, um, you know, we're spending two or two and a half hours editing.
0: Wow! 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 That's a, that's a whole bunch of thing. I mean, like I know because you know once this job, once this once this podcast is done, I mean, like I have to go and you know for edit for the YouTube video, I edit micro content out of it, you know, write a copy for it and write the script for it. Yeah, it's it's kind of <laughs> really big stuff. Yeah, and uh, so in case uh, if you are ever hit by a car, I mean, like don't this in negative sense. In case if you ever hit by a car and the airbag is actually right in your face, who would actually be the first person that comes to your mind?
1: If I'm hit by a car. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, it's going to be my family. I mean, it's like, oh, geez, you know, they're going to have an awful lot of uh, details to clean up. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, uh, it's really hard to think about. But, you know, particularly if you're a sole, you know, if you're a sole entrepreneur, uh, and you have, you know, a company of one or Mm -hmm. two people, it's 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 continuity is something that we should think about and we probably don't think about enough where does the company go if you're not there to to run it so you've given me some food for thought there
0: (laughs) oh my god (laughs) don't take negative sense because you know when i say that people actually kind of think like i mean like oh my god why is he actually talking about death right now i mean like i don't know because i always wondered what happens like right after we die what happens i mean like I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to us, but whatever happens to after that, I think it's kind of thing that always we need to think about. So uh, one final question in rapid fire is that uh, now, if in case you want to get out of this interview right now that we are doing right now, what actually the excuse that you would say?
1: If I wanted to get out of it. Yeah. Um, I would probably say, listen, I have to run. Um, you know, I have a podcasting client who has an, needs an emergency podcast.
0: Wow, well, that's actually a decent one. Because the one of the guy actually interviewed, he said, "I have diarrhea, and I would just have to go to the." Box. He actually kind of said that.
1: Oh my gosh! Yes, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> because you
1: know, he, I, I would, I would find a different excuse than that. I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's actually stand up comedian, so maybe he, you know, said it in a uh, funny sort of way. But yeah, I think that's actually. I'm kind of collecting you know, data for that, just in case if someone says anything like I just need to get get a guess out of that. Yeah. If I had
1: prepared in advance, I probably would have created a video of myself getting hit by a bus <laughs> and played that for. You. I said, "I'm sorry, I, I can't do this podcast now. I'm getting hit by a bus."
0: <laughs> Glad I didn't, <laughs> you yeah, know, put sent you the questions before. Well, <laughs> oh, that's an awesome one. So, uh, so one final question before wrapping up is that: uh, What would you actually give as the best tip that you could give in the whole world to a fellow podcaster in order to grow? The best tip in the world.
1: Um, You know, producing sound that sounds good is is absolutely critical. Um, Mm -hmm. Even if you have bad video, Mm -hmm. um, if you have bad sound with the bad video, that's going to be the fastest way to lose your audience. Mm -hmm. Um, I really think the sound matters more. And to the extent you can get really good quality sound. And for heaven's sakes, um, I would say to every podcaster out there, mm-hmm. learn about and understand normalization and compression techniques, which mm-hmm. are they're technical techniques, but yeah. uh, to make your sound even, to make the volume levels consistent from one speaker to another, Mm -hmm. because uh, there's nothing worse than having earphones on, listening to a podcast and having to crank up the volume to listen to one speaker. And then when it switches to another person on the panel, Mm -hmm. the sound blasts you in the ears and your ears start bleeding because of the inconsistency in volume. The volume should be the same from one speaker to the next Mm -hmm. um, and use, you know, decent quality microphones, uh, decent quality recording techniques Mm -hmm. that to me is like the most important tip
0: wow yeah i mean like i'm actually getting trying to get a hold of that you know using adobe audition and everything and because i actually got kind of this problem i don't know whether you had this because whenever i you know put on my headphones and edit it whenever you know whenever i put eq or compression or normalization or parametric equalizer or dynamic processing whatever it is and kind of actually sounding the same every single time whenever uh, after i put an effect is it actually a problem in my ear or is it actually the, uh, the audio quality isn't changed at, at all? Because whatever I do, you know, it's kind of actually, kind of sounds it the doesn't. same. still. It, uh,
1: you know, you may just, you, you may either have ear fatigue or, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe the effects are not being added mm-hmm. to the uh, soundtrack in the way you think they are. You may uh, need to check uh, and see and make sure the effects are turned on and that they're being, being applied to the sound that you're processing. It's possible. Uh,
0: yeah, probably. I think I mean, like, I mean, like I've been suffering from it you know, quite some time I'm actually wondering is it actually because I don't know if either anyone ever got a problem out of it. Because even after you add a lot of effects to it still the audio sounds the same. That's a, be something problem to your area or your, you know, brain. So yeah, I think that's of the reasons. So, um, so Steve, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Really, you know, it's been an awesome interview. And you actually said a lot of things that many people actually don't know and the best modeling of the best model for the podcasting and stuff. So in case if people want to find your content, your book and everything, where do they actually go to? Can you give them?
1: Oh, well, we have, uh, we have the contact information up on our screen. Mm-hmm. Um, the website is being <clears> the <throat> Excuse me. And uh, if they want information about the book itself, the book has its own website um, and that is uh, the business of podcasting dot uh, com I can put the book up here's the book i'll take mm. down the so you can see the book um, the business of podcasting dot com and we have some uh, podcast interviews that I've done and that Donna has done are on mm. that page um, and so you can go there and get information about that um, and if they want to uh, follow me on twitter i'm Uh, at podcast Steve on Twitter. And um, we hope that, uh, you know, people will listen and enjoy. And uh, I'd be happy to hear from anybody. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today.
0: Wow! thanks for the opportunity to being with me. I mean, like that's, that's a really an awesome thing to do. And thanks so much guys for listening to this podcast. And uh, we actually discussed a ton of things. And uh, like always, I will leave the timestamps below so that you can, you know, steadily go to the content, whichever you like. And thank you so much, Mr. Steve coming out of the podcast. And uh, is there anything that you want to convey last? As like a disclaimer, anything like that?
1: Oh, we'll see you out there on the net.
0: Let's <laughs> see you as well, guys. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you guys in the next podcast.